Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. You know those times when you have a conversation with someone and for some reason, it just doesn't seem to be getting through. It's almost like you're speaking totally different languages. On the flip side, there are times when you speak to someone and it feels like it just sings. But you're not really sure why. What's the difference between the two? Often we just talk about gut instincts or, you know, connections. But really, underneath it all, it's often impacted by our non-verbal communication. Today's guest has made it his life's work to research nonverbal communication. And at the age of 75, he spends his retirement, yes, retirement, traveling the world, continuing to educate people on leadership, group dynamics, and the subtle science and art of perception. He's also deeply in love with his wife, and you will hear that in our conversation today. Michael is one of these rare human beings that has an ability to educate a deep curiosity about the world and a way just to connect and resonate with other people. I know you're going to get a ton of really practical strategies out of our conversation today as you sit back and enjoy the beautiful Michael Grinder. Michael, it's such a delight to have you in the studio. It's Pleasure. honour to be sitting down with you. There's, there's so much um, that... I know I want to dive into with you, but one of the things that I know about you and the times that we have spent together is that you are just an, a consummate educator. It's almost like you can't <laughs> not do that <laughs> in whatever space you're in. It's my DNA. It's in my DNA. <laughs> Why is education so important? I think it's because I had such a difficult time. Uh, on YouTube, we have a two-minute clip called Mikey. You have to put down Mikey Grinder. It shows me in black and white way back into the 50s. And I was just hyperactive. I couldn't sit still. So I didn't know how to read. I actually graduated from a high school with what we'd call here in Australia a year four reading level. So it's almost illiterate. And then I had to teach myself how to read when I was 20. How did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I went to parochial school. So my family is extremely... Catholic, Irish, fourth generation, and I've been the second born, fit into a uh, pattern that I wasn't even aware of. The second born becomes a priest, and the humor is that so the mother can get to heaven. And so (laughs) I went from an all-boys high school to a non-academic-oriented seminary and got in. And while I was in there, I realized I'm just ignorant. So I thought, well, what am I going to do about this? So I ended up getting a list of the 100 most read novels by doctors and lawyers in America. I thought, well, if I could just get through these, I'd be fine. So Taylor Two Cities, Copperfield, Ivanhoe. So you just started small, like the the basics. (laughs) Very, very. Yeah, yeah, just make it little. So I broke the rules for two years and I'd wake up an hour early and that's one of the advantages of being hyperactive is you don't have to sleep very long. I'd go in the closet, turn on the light. No one ever did it for two years. I would take the pages and I had to rip them out of the book 
because looking at the book scared the bejeebers out of me. So I usually would do two pages in one hour, and I'd go through. And people that teach reading know if you have three words a page, the, most of the readers will quit. I had 10 to 15. But I would take all these words and underline them. So then after we had mass in the morning and we are finally allowed to talk and we were at breakfast, I'd pass this paper around that had torn out of the book. And then all the smart people, which was everyone else in the seminary, they would put a check next to a little nick on the words that are still used. Because I was using words like panoply and parapet and palfrey. They're not really usable words anymore. So then I'd go back to my room, open up a big dictionary, and because I'm highly distractible, I would highlight the word that I was going to learn for the day that all the people underlined. Well, as I try to get to that page, I was distracted by all the other highlighted yellow words in the dictionary. So I reinforced myself really well. Then I'd take a little piece of paper, usually three words a day, and I'd either write the word or the definition or use it in a sentence. Then I'd stuff it in my clothing. And then during the day, just always fiddling and moving around, I'd, there's something in my sock. And I'd take out that little piece of paper. So my vocabulary is extremely high. But that's how I taught myself how to read. Amazing, amazing the dedication of that. It's where the uh, hyperactivity, as you say, yes, came it, into it's a positive. into its own. So much of what you do, you now spend your time educating others and you've been doing that for many, many years in such different varieties. Yeah. What do you love most about educating others? Is it the, you know, seeing them come into the room? Is it the aha moments? What, what is it that, that keeps well, I, you coming back? Th there's two parts. There's um, retirement and um, uh, before retirement. Before I retired, I really did love just giving the people and seeing the joy of, I would call it freedom, freedom of choice. You know, you now know something you didn't know before, so now you have a latitude of what do I want to do about that the next time I'm in a similar situation. Well, then when I was 59 years old, my wife and I, we had reached all of our financial goals. So we said, well, what are we going to do with retirement? So I'm 75 now. And so I've had all these years of saying, I don't have to work anymore. So what do I want to do? So I've spent these years, I apologize, not being very altruistic. I'm doing selfish things. I want to know how far I can push the limit of recognizing nonverbal communication, putting it in different packages, what works. So I'm doing a lot of online stuff and just all kinds of experimental things. But I've tried to switch away from writing books and going in the DVDs because it's hard to see written about nonverbals. You have to see it. You have to hear it. So we have over 100 clips on YouTube right now, and we have our own channel so people can be notified every time we put a new one up. I love it. It's that fascination. And I was going to ask you at the age of 75, the fact that you're still working, whether you'd even heard about the word retirement. <laughs> What's your secret to kind of keep being interested, to keep being fascinated? Oh, gosh. I, I've really, I, I would say two things. One is I'm madly in love with my wife. And so she supports me. But we have regulations and we have 90 revenue days is the maximum I can be gone in a year because that pays for our office staff. So it's not for us, it's to run the office. So one is to make sure that we have enough money and we're fine. The second thing that just pushes me is, it's like a thirst that I just, 
I can't live without learning. So just um, if we go on vacation, sometimes Gail will say, I'm required to read one novel. But I'll stay up all night trying to finish it because I get too involved in it. And I want to get back to typing. So we have to make sure that I stay in love. So I'm allowed to do three hours of work a day. And then anything past that, I have to have her permission. So I know I have the passion. It's more that she's like the rudder underneath the ship of our relationship. And she makes sure that we stay in love. And I love that part. And that you get some sleep in between. Yes. <laughs> probably I'm getting you. better at sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. With um, you have deeply dived into that area of nonverbal communication, and and you kind of even described before that it's been a bit of an obsession for yes. you. Yes. And I think as human beings, we're we're deeply fascinated by other people, and it's almost like. When you start talking about nonverbal communication, they go, well, I just want to know if my kids are lying. Like, I just want to know, (laughs) you know, (laughs) whether they're telling me the truth or not. Uh, But there's so much more Mm -hmm. to that world. Uh, What do you, what has drawn you into that world? Yeah, We, we probably need to make a transparent distinction. People are fascinated when I can read someone else. And I do that very well. That's not of interest to me. Uh, most people want me to say, would you profile this human being here? And on YouTube, we have like me profiling David Cameron when he was running as prime minister. And I, that's not my, where my love is. My love is for you to understand your nonverbals and how that affects other people. So people here in Australia like um, Alan and Barbara Pease, they have a great series of books on how to profile other people and interpret nonverbal communication. My love is trying to go, can I give you the freedom so you know if you put your palm down, sideways, or up, how your voice would change, and which change do you want? So I like liberating people through their own awareness. So looking at their own nonverbal communication. If with a um I guess a lot of the work that, that we do, and I know you work in this space a bit as well, is working with leaders around how they can have a sense of um being credible but being um respected yeah. by the people around them. And sometimes yeah. that can feel mutually exclusive. Yes. That either I, I tell you how it's <laughs> yeah. done or yeah. I'm your mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what are the ways that leaders can really concentrate on their own nonverbal? We tried to come up with a um, metaphor to help people understand that. And we came up with what we call circles of humanness. And it basically says that when you encounter another person, the first thing you respond to are their appearance. So we call that the outside circle. And you hallucinate what they must be like within 40 seconds based on their appearance and their facial features and the clothing that they wear. Then if you're with them for, say, half hour or so, you'll replace thinking about who they are based on appearance to their behaviors. Do they talk a lot? Do they not talk a lot? If you work with them, you'll replace behaviors with style. And that's where we've done a fine job in the last 30 years in terms of personal inventories, whether it be Myers-Briggs, Find Your Strength, um, Parachutes. Then the last two circles are your values and your core. When we work with leaders, we want them to understand that they have these five circles and everyone else has five circles. And to me, the most important question a leader asks, 
which of my circles do I want to expose and be vulnerable with or not be vulnerable with? And which of the other person's circle do I want to engage with? So one of the pleasures that you and your husband and I have is we know each other. So we can go directly into what's been going on, how's your value instead of how's the weather. So the level of depth is based on the safety. If you feel safe, why would you talk about outside things? So the, the first question is, what circle do I want to share? And then what circle do I want to engage with? Well, from that, we find that leaders feel very liberated if they understand that their inside core is their human being. And sometimes their behavior on that second level, that's their position. So the question is, when do I do my position? When do I do my person? Charismatic people or ultimate leadership is when you know when to go back and forth, when to go personable and when to go positional. And just that frees so many leaders going, oh, good, I thought I had to choose one or the other. Nope. That you can actually be both and there are yes. moments in a day where you can need to be in your position. Yes. And then there might be moments, sometimes it can be an hour later, I can imagine, Yeah. where you can be your person. And so one of the ways to think about this that would be very easy to, for our listeners to comprehend and actually apply is that if you're working with someone who's highly functional, you want to absolutely open up and be transparent and share your inner sanctuary with their inner sanctuary and facilitate them, mentor them. Why would you manage them? They're fine. But if we have someone who's dysfunctional and you try to open up your heart and put your heart on your sleeve and you've already tried for two years to help the lad or the female and they're not doing well, you do not want to manage them, discipline them from your heart because it hurts too much. So it's my behavior with their behaviors, and that's it. So when to open up, when to not open up, it's based on how functional the person is, the group is, or the situation is. Now I want to dive into a topic, and one that you mentioned just before we jumped on on, on air, on mic, was around perception, mm-hmm. and that this is an area that you that you deeply love kind of exploring. How do we read other people? Um, well, not read other people, but how do I comprehend right. what's going on for right. them and therefore how do I respond in a way that holds true to myself and holds true to them? At the same time. Yeah. What is it about uh, uh, perception that draws you in? Well, I think it's the deepest level that I've come across is trying to understand from a nonverbal standpoint what's, what's their sanctuary? So we have on YouTube, for those that would like to look at it, and just put in Michael Grinder, House of Communication. And what we say is that there's four floors, the nonverbals. The first floor is what you say. So that's the content, that's the knowledge. And most people go to uni for that. You get some kind of a certificate. But if you have two people that equal with equal knowledge, the one that can deliver the knowledge is actually a better communicator. So the second floor is the process of delivering the first floor. And we call that nonverbals. So what do you do with your eyes, your voice, body, and breathing? The third floor is where perception is, and that's what I love. And what it is is we took the idea of north, south, east, west, and we decided when you look out north, the N stands for a new person. 
So you're trying to figure out respectfully what is that person's values, what's their motivation, intention, perceptual filters. And that's the questions you ask. But if you go over the East wall, the E stands for looking at two people and you want to know, are they both equal or is one a little more equal than the other? So now you're asking the question, not what are the intentions, motivation, beliefs of each person, but you're trying to figure out who's more likely to dominate. When you place people on teams, that's one of the best perceptions you can have. And it's not always the, the person with the title. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who's ever been in the military, the stripes on the sleeve have nothing to do with who has... <laughs> or the, in families. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Sorry about that. Firstborns out yeah. there. Sorry about that, firstborn. <laughs> the third area of the floor that talks about, you know, the north and the east, you go over the west wall. The west wall is group dynamics. And you're not trying to figure out who's likely to dominate. You ask a different question. What is likely to happen next? And this is where leadership comes in. Because if you've been trained too much in one-on-one communication, you keep thinking that the whole is the sum of the parts. It's not. Group dynamics have their own culture. So by asking what is likely to happen next, if you like what is about to happen, reinforce it. If you don't like it, intervene early and see if you can do something about it. Then we have one more wall and one more level of perception. And that's the S for the south wall, and that stands for the system. So the difference between the system and the west wall, the group dynamics, the group dynamics are the people present. The south wall is all the people present plus all the people that are not present that are affecting our presence and being affected by what we decide. So I call them the ghost. And anyone who's in a large firm, it's been around for a while, or all families, we have ghosts. And how do you get the ghost to stabilize so we can talk to the ghost? So we have traditions and uh, scars and halos that have nothing to do with the present, but they're just part of our and heritage. So is that where you talk about um, someone might have had an experience, for, say, for example, from a previous workplace, and they're almost bringing that um, fear, concern, expectation to a new environment? Yep. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about, those ghosts? Completely, mm-hmm. completely. And then sometimes you have, like, uh, I was in uh, Sweden last summer and doing some work, and I went from one city to the other city, and the person who was a liaison for the second city was rather shy about talking about the city. I said, what's wrong? She says, well, we had a murder about five years ago, and we don't know who it was that um, caused it, and the person who died was found, and so we, we feel contaminated. Even the name of our city just brings out feelings in people all over the country. So sometimes it's It's someone that you can't figure out how to pinpoint why do we operate the way we do. Uh, I remember my wife, (laughs) she was a volunteer for what's called victim advocates. So the police department would give her agency that she volunteered for a list of all the victims, and she would call the victims and see if she could help them with complimentary counseling. And she and I were shopping for something, and she came out of the dressing room with this gorgeous, gorgeous outfit. And I said, oh, honey, that looks great on you. And as we're driving home, I said, please do not wear that 
when you go to work because you'll become contaminated. And so sometimes some of our listeners know that they can look at their closet. They have an outfit they get compliments on. You still won't wear it. It's quite likely that something happened that is associated with that outfit mm. and it's contaminated. Yeah, so it can be That's things. That's a ghost. It can be places. Yeah. It can be people. Names, yeah. yeah. So there's north, south, east, west in this perception. You've got your individual, uh, whether a, a, two, a party of two, the group dynamics, so what changes and what influences our behaviour in, in a group setting, and then the, the ghosts, the yep. system yep. that can be around us that might be community, yep. organisational, family, yeah. <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> um, so when you dive into perception, is that then a combination of all of those, north, south, east, west? I'm trying to figure out which one I want to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So when we run a what we call a perception camp, we end up having people bring three-minute clips with other people's permission of them, and we show it on the screen, and we show you how to analyze it. But sometimes we have like a a scene of like four people. Sometimes it's even from a movie. But the person who is volunteering this particular clip says, I only want you to pay attention to one person. So then you have to ask different sets of questions based on if you want one person, two people, group dynamics or a system. And several years ago, someone brought in Steve Jobs and he was on the news and they took the clip off of it and he was asking the city council in the greater San Francisco area for a variance in terms of what he wanted to construct. And so we had all this interplay, but they said, just tell me what is Steve Jobs' values. And so that's all we did. So you really have to take your binoculars of perception and go, what am I paying attention to? And don't pay attention to more than one of those north, east, west, and south at a time. On a personal level, do you ever get a chance to switch that off if you're watching TV? Are you <laughs> constantly going, what's going on for them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, Gail and I have a rule as we watch television. First time through, I'm not allowed to study it. <laughs> Just enjoy the emotions. But if it's really good, then I almost always the next day order from Amazon the DVD of it, and then I study it. And I've uh, spent some money with... Um, some lawyers from Hollywood, and I have permission now, the style that I'm doing, that will be putting up on YouTube different clips from movies, and I explain, I'm down in the little corner, and I explain what's going on. Uh, The one I like best right now that I've just finished uh, that isn't quite yet ready for YouTube is called the movie Saving Private Ryan. And we show a very, very almost volatile situation that could explode And Tom Hanks switches from his position to his person and everyone calms down. It's so cool. It's a great study of what we call charismatic leadership. That would be amazing to kind of unpack that. Where does the interest come for you? For me? Mm. Boy, I can't tell you. It's such a DNA. I know it's just, it's me. (laughs) I just love it. But I can turn it off. I can be absolutely fully present enjoy myself. But if we're driving home and Gail says, "Uh, dear, I want you to go back to the party. Tell me what. And I can literally go back. And I was fully present. I wasn't observing. I was participating. But I still can go back and analyze. Yeah. It's that, that, and you were talking about before, that metacognition of seeing what you're seeing as you go. Yeah. 
You have a beautiful, um, when you spoke before about your circles of humanness, you have, and, and the third one being around styles, um, you have a really lovely way of kind of describing different styles that people can step into from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you make reference to those around household pets, <laughs> being <laughs> cats and dogs. <laughs> I wanted you uh, explore that. And, and if you don't mind kind of sharing uh what those different styles are and how they might turn up for people. Oh, you're spot on in terms of this is probably the number one thing that people enjoy the most. And I was looking around for how do you explain human behavior but not with psychological terms. And respectfully, I'm not trained in it. So if I was a psychologist, I'd be asking, why do people act the way they do? But as a nonverbal specialist, I say, what is the effect on other people? So it's a very different kind of focus. So in trying to think of, you know, how am I going to come up with a um, set of images that already don't already have connotations attached to them? And I happened to be walking into my kitchen, and there was my cat on the counter. And the cat looked over at me and knows that I'm the parent that yells, whereas Gail doesn't. It's like, ah, get, get down! And it jumped down. And it looks at me like, you know, why should I type of thing? But, you know, then I walk out of the room and I peeked around the corner and the cat had already jumped back up. So I thought, what a great image for what we call non-compliant people, independent thinkers, out of the box. And then I thought of my dog. And my dog at that time was really old. He was 10 years old. And I could, you know, call him to come over. It may take him two weeks, but he's coming because he wants to please so much. So we created a whole model around people being dogs and cats, and we use the letters, the initials T and R to describe each of them. So everyone is, it's just a circle, so it's not you, it's not your center core. So everyone has occasions where they tend to operate from their dog or from their cat. And when you operate from your dog, you're looking at the T and the R stands for, the T stands for tranquility, and the R stands for routines. So where do you want to be a dog in life? Your cat has a T and an R, and it stands for tension and risk. So where do you like which? And I promise all of us have a part that is an independent cat, and all of us have a part that's a compliant dog. So it's just a great way of understanding individuals without going into psychological language. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful way, and I know we've used it, and I've in particular have used it um, in a women in leadership kind of program yeah. where we kind of talk about these styles, uh, the program called Lead Boldly, and, and it's been so valuable for, for the participants uh, because a lot of women in leadership roles yeah. will go to that cat, sure, I'll do whatever you want, <laughs> like I'll take it on the board. The dog, yeah, yeah, the dog. Yeah. Oh, the dog, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yet there are... That it's hard to be then seen as a leader yes. if that's the role. Yeah. How, you know, in what might be the steps, or what would you advise someone if they want to start right. to make that transition from dog to cat? Boy, uh, you first have to find out that there is some part of your life that you are a cat. So my wife Gail uh, is a dog for almost everyone in her world, except with me. So I'm the romantic dog, and she's the romantic cat. And even our three grown grown children, they really have a hard time believing that mom, mom is so nice. Well, you know where is the mom? I'm the spouse. It's different. 
So being the romantic dog, I give her flowers every week. And what I find is I love those routines. But for her, that doesn't work. So every once in a while, usually about every fourth or fifth week, I have to not give her flowers until she throws the other flowers away. And now I'm teasing her cat. So the nicest person in the world, in my opinion, is my wife. But she's still a cat. And the other way to think about it is she cooks like a cat. So if she doesn't have something, an ingredient, and she's using her Internet connection, she doesn't mind. I'll just throw this spice in and say, so that's a cat. So the number one way to start people that are more innately dog to realize their cat is to first figure out in what arenas do you really go. The second thing is this. If you go back to our five circles of humanness, when you have to do something that in your mind as a human being would be harsh, make sure you're not in your person, make sure you're over in your position. The other thing that we find that really works for people, but a little bit more for women than it is for men, because it is a whole cultural difference. And just for the listeners, I have six biological sisters, so I'm well-versed in terms of that I don't understand. The, the glass ceiling. <laughs> and I will tell you. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I go, I agree. I, I will never understand, but please teach me so I can support other people in a more sensitive way. And one of the things we know is that if you do not step in and discipline a dysfunctional human being, you're going to make all the other people that work with that person even more dysfunctional. So then the second level of understanding how to become more of a cat, quit looking at the individual you're doing. You look at all the people not present, the system, and you have an obligation to those people even more than the individual that's right in front of you. So sometimes you have to fool yourself. Uh, one person, high leadership, she literally has a picture of everyone in the company on a photograph on her desk. And when she has the difficult conversations, she looks at all those people so she doesn't get hooked into feeling sorry and empathy for someone that she's already worked way past the time that she should have in terms of seeing if that person would change. I love that visual of this is who I'm doing it for. My, who's my audience? Of. Who's my audience? Mm. Before the, we turned the mics on, I asked you whether you had a, a story that you'd love to share. And the prompt that you gave me was, what's my first love and what's my second love? I, when you walk into my office, I'm a tree farmer uh, up by the, above California, up by Canada. And I have my own corporate office on my property. And as you walk in, there's a sign there. And it says, this is because I'm retired financially but I'm not retired professionally. And it says, the purpose of Michael Grinder and Associates is to fulfill Michael's dream while he stays in love with Gail. So everyone that works there knows this is why you come every day. And so then I made a DVD a clip that's on YouTube and it has me standing in front of all my books that I've ever written and says, this is my second love. This is my second love. <laughs> And then it shows a picture again. Go. This is my first love, mm. and it just, it just. She keeps me grounded. Um, she will never be impressed by my success, although she's a vicarious achiever, and wants me to do well because I represent both of us. Um, 
Every book I write is dedicated to her. The last one said, um, when you live with beauty and kindness, you're inspired. And that's what I'm still writing. It's inspiring to um, keep that front of mind as much as in in actions, not just in words as well. Yes. And you can hear that in your language and, and your description of that. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like that's a, a constant reminder mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Um, with what is it uh, when it comes to, I guess, humanity and, yeah. and, you know, the connections of people and the wisdom over the years of the variety of people that you've kind of connected with, uh, are there any conversations that you wish we were having more of that maybe we're not having? <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. Um, I think that if you go back to those circles of humanness, we just, it's so hard for people to get past looks. I'm here in Australia and I just came from working in Darwin with the educational system there and just trying to understand that even when someone is resisting you, in the case of education, it's a student, that's still a good human being. That's their behavior. That could be their cultural style. And even when they say an expletive back at you, if you want to understand diversity, quit staying with the idea of just bullying. Quit staying with the idea of behaviors and appearances. There's so much more. How do you get to the the ghost that that person comes from. How do you get to the point that you have to remind yourself they're probably doing the best job they can? And sometimes when you get to know their value and their core of another human being, not just as a teacher, but just anyone, you start admiring, holy cow, you're doing really well from the circumstances that you have right now. So um, recently I tore my rotator cuff in my left arm, so... I can't lift baggage or anything until I have a examination. Sorry, I have the examination, but my April 4th, I get to finally see a doctor about it. So I've now had to depend on other people. And it's amazing for me to watch their response to me. And because I'm 75 and I'm short, I use that to my advantage <laughs> all the time for having people help me. I also, and this may bother some people, but I absolutely believe in it, all the tags on my bags have the Canadian <laughs> logo. And not so much in Australia, but when I go to Europe, I get better service because people think of the appearance, I must be Canadian, therefore I'm a nice person compared to the Americans. That's what I think the dialogue conversations we're not having. It's how do you How do you get beyond surface? How do you get to the inside? And even I want to jump back in the the statement you made around how do you get to the point where you realise that people are doing the best they can. Yes. And and often that can be a, a desire or a hope. And uh, I, I've definitely wrestled with that myself but also had conversations yeah. with people. Um, and when push comes to shove, the often the pushback can be, but they know better. Surely yeah. they know better. <laughs> what would you respond to that? <laughs> I actually had that conversation with Gail because we were a mom Paul corporation for a number of years. And I just could not get her oh, probably in the mid-90s to 
really get involved with electronic, Gail. Come on. We need us a mom and pa. You need to take care of the electronics, and I'll take care of the invention and all that. And we happened to be at a professional basketball game. And she was so smart. She turned to me. She said, wasn't that a great opening to the game with someone singing the, uh, the, our famous American song? And I went, yes. And she turned to me and looked me right in the eye and said, would you be willing to sing that the next time we come to a game? And I went, white. I went, no. And so she had found the equivalent for her of me asking her to do something. And I was accusing her of, you don't care about our business as much as I do because you're not learning electronics. And that was an example of, I could not go down and sing that song. And I'm doing the best I can. Sometimes you have talents that are just... So what we find is this. We try to teach people that every time they're going to make a decision to take their non-dominant hand, for most people that's their left hand, and put it on their abdomen. If that part of your body is not going in and out, you're breathing too high to make a decision. So the question becomes, when do you trust your gut? When do you believe they're just not wanting it? And especially with people that are homeless, mentally ill, just it's a huge problem. I'm not saying I have the answer, but I'm just saying do not trust your gut unless you're breathing low in the gut, abdomen, or if you're in physical danger, you do whatever comes to mind. So the chemicals of fight or flight or freeze, you follow those, but only, only when you're in danger. The rest of the time, please, please, if you're emotional, you are not equipped to make a reaction. Breathe deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drop into it. I love that, even that, just that physical trigger of can yeah. I trust my gut? Can yeah. I trust my gut? Yeah, because so much we go, no, but I'm right, I'm right. <laughs> but we're breathing shallow. Now, a, a distinction that would be helpful is called intrapersonal intelligence and interpersonal intelligence. Me with me, that's called creativity. You trust anything that comes along. That's fine. That's you with you. That, that's just being creative. But being outside yourself, watching other people, now you can't trust it. So just you with you, whatever your instincts are. Because you can ask really creative people, you know, like someone will ask me, Michael, where do you get your ideas? Like you have. I go, I have no idea, but they better keep coming. I have deadlines. <laughs> so just intra versus interpersonal intelligence. Yeah, love that distinction. If you had the opportunity to put something up on a billboard, something anywhere in the world, uh, that a lot of people would see. <laughs> what would you put on a billboard? I don't think I would. <laughs> <laughs> what I would do, though, and I do this all the time, is at my hometown, I'd rent the billboard and say, Gail, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> so for a birthday a couple of years ago, I hired a skywriter, and just she looked up in the sky and saw it. So I find that if I surprise her, uh, I keep courting her. I, I never presume that... Uh, there's a famous line that I stole from Kipling that I just love, and it says, because of Gail's unconditional acceptance of me, I find that fame and failure are equal imposters. It's just core to core. That's what I have with Gail. So I don't think I'd put up a billboard. Uh, it might be nice to say, listen, are we doing the right dialogue? But I, I don't think I'd be part of that. 
beautiful. I um, I have a feeling there might be a lot of wives have their husbands listen to this podcast. <laughs> just, a, just from a romance point of view, I just think that may happen. It's a bit of an education. Look, I do want to. It's been just such a delight spending time with you, Michael, but, and I want to end with this final question to you. Uh, the name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. Yeah. And if I were to offer that term up yes. to you, what yes. does it mean to you to live a standout life? Now that you say that, that's what, I'd put that on a billboard. <laughs> or if you put it up there, I'll help pay for it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. it. It's like, can you let your inside, you know, your core and your values, can you let it appear outside? Because one of the things we know is our self-image is the number one thing that gets in the way of her professional development. Sometimes you just have to let that set it aside and stand up. And one of the things we know about people, and I just love you supporting women, is that we have to have them feel supported by each other, not by society, for them to do what needs to be done. There's a researcher years ago, he's since passed away, that was a brain researcher. He just openly said, we cannot retrain males as CEOs, as superintendents. We've got to hire women because of their capacity to be both issue-oriented and relationship-oriented at the same time. Man, I'm not equipped like that. I mean, Gail can be talking to my our daughter, and every once in a while they say a pronoun, and I don't know which pronoun it is. <laughs> and they go, I got it, Dad. You don't, don't butt in, Dad. I go, Man, that... That extra level of communication, it is so cool. But we got to stand up and we got to stand out and we got to support each other doing it. Amen. Amen. Look, Michael, thank you so much. Keep, keep following your DNA <laughs> right up until your second retirement. Absolutely. If that ever happens. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Pleasure. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.